If you've ever been in the market for a new home, you know home shopping can be a lot. There's so much you don't know and so much you need to know. What are the neighborhoods like? What are the schools like? Who is the agent who knows the listing or neighborhood best? And why can't all this information just be in one place? Well, now it is on homes.com. They've got everything you need to know about the listing itself. But even better, they've got comprehensive neighborhood guides and detailed reports about local schools. And their agent directory helps you see the agent's current listings and sales history. Homes.com collaboration tools make it easier than ever to share all this information with your family. It's a whole cul-de-sac of home shopping information, all at your fingertips. Homes.com. We've done your homework. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own? Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. So there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Welcome to the Jill on Money podcast. It is Sunday, October 3rd. Well, 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 Mark, here we are. It's a football Sunday. And here are the lineups that we are caring about for those of us here in the New York metropolitan area. The 0-3 Jets will be working against the Titans. The 0-3 Giants are going to face the Saints. Looks like maybe by the end of the day, the New York metropolitan-based teams will be a combined 0-8. That is why I will be watching the Bills versus the Texans. Okay, off football, on to you, on to the program. Yesterday, we started the show with an interview with Brad Stolberg. He is an author and really wrote a very interesting book called The Practice of Groundedness. We were trying to sort of lay the groundwork for today's episode with Brad talking about peak performance, which was his first book. I always had this aversion to that. So then all of a sudden, as I was reading the this book of his, The Practice of Groundedness, I was so happy to, to really hear what he had learned after doing peak performance. And it's a it's a very personal story that Brad tells. So if you didn't listen to yesterday's episode, don't listen to this yet. Go back and listen to that. This is the second part of our interview with Brad Stolberg. I'm wondering this idea of, you know, nourishing your roots, which I really do love. How can I best as an old fart who's gone through these like ups and downs and lots of downs, certainly professionally and in life and relationships, how can I explain this 
focus on your roots in a way that, you know, a 30-year-old can hear it. Or even middle age who are trying to find the groundedness um, besides obviously giving them your book, but talking about it with them. What is it that people need to think about? Yeah. And there's one more age group too. And, you know, you strike me as the kind of person that loves your craft. You're clearly good at it. I'm not just trying to butter you up. You'll probably work till you die. A lot of people, when they retire, they run into the same problem that the 30-year-old runs into, which is like, who am I? I feel unmoored. Anyways, to answer your question, if you think about a big old redwood tree, I grew up, well, I didn't grow up. I grew up in suburban Detroit, but I feel like I grew up in in the Bay Area because I spent my young adulthood. I spent a lot of time in the Bay Area. I lived there for nine and a half years. And there were these massive redwood trees. And when you would stand underneath one and be in its presence, you can't help but feel awe. They're like 100 feet tall. They have this beautiful, big, lush overstory, and their trunks are just enormous. Nobody looks down at the ground and thinks, huh, the roots are what holds this tree up throughout all kind of weather. So we look at the branches, we look at the overstory, we look at the trunk, and that's where we see the beauty. But when it storms, it's none of that that keeps the tree solid attached to the ground. It's the root system. And we're the same way. So the stuff that really allows us to be our best, allows us to grow our metaphorical overstory, allows us to have this really strong core is often hidden from view. And that to me is like the best way to explain it. You want to be this massive redwood tree in your own life and do great things and have this strong, solid core. Well, you're only going to be as strong as your root system. I'm wondering about one of the six principles specifically, and it's about vulnerability. And I'd like you to talk a little bit about this concept. And I have a very specific reason I'm asking this and that you say that embrace vulnerability to develop genuine strength and confidence. And you say, you talk about showing up authentically. And you know, I think this is a really hard concept because people say, well, if I show up authentically, then my boss isn't going to appreciate who I am and I'm scared or I don't really think I'm in a safe enough environment to do that or I'm this, whatever it is. But this particular one of the six principles really popped out at me. So I'm wondering if we could go there a little bit. I'm going to start with the science and then I'm going to tell a story. Okay. So the science is very clear. Researchers at the University of Manningham, which is a school in Germany, they ran a series of multiple experiments. All the experiments had the same gist. They had two people sit down across from each other and have an intimate conversation. And the sharer was instructed to be very vulnerable. And not performative vulnerability like, you know, I didn't sleep well or I'm struggling with my nutrition, but real vulnerability. Like, I've suffered from mental illness. I've been divorced. I lost a spouse. I lost a child. I'm estranged from my parents. Like the the stuff that makes you uncomfortable. And they went on and they had a conversation. After the conversation, the person that was doing the sharing said that they felt weak, ashamed, sometimes embarrassed. The person that was on the receiving end said that they respected that person. They admired that person. And they felt that that person epitomized strength. So there's this paradox that when you're being vulnerable, it can make you feel weak, but it helps others perceive you as strong. And 
that like human connection is so powerful. So here's the story that really brings that science to life. In my executive coaching practice, I was working with a woman, I'm going to call her Donna. And she had ascended to the C-suite of this mega international company. Her colleagues lovingly called her the double only because she was the only woman in the C-suite and the only black person in the C-suite. And she herself was not targeting this role. She calls herself an accidental executive. And she had massive imposter syndrome right off the bat. And particularly when she was speaking to audiences overseas. And she was on the roadshow talking about company vision and values. And she'd get up on the stage and she would be anxious. She'd feel like she's performing. And I said, well, Donna, not her real name, I've changed it. Donna, what do you, what do you actually want to say? She said, what I really want to say, Brad, is that I'm pretty overwhelmed. I never thought I'd be here. And I said, well, why don't you say that? And she said, they're going to lose confidence in me. And I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. You, I, I've been public about having the most bizarro, terrifying, crippling thoughts. And you pay me all this money to coach you. Did you lose confidence in me? She said, no. Actually, I trust you more because of it. I'm like, so why don't you give it a try? So the next time she had one of these talks, she got up on the stage and she said just that. She said, I'm overwhelmed. I'm in awe that I got here. I'm not sure how. She spun it a little and she said, that's why it's so important that you all, hundreds of employees and staff, are showing up, giving us feedback, helping us co-create this on and on. Sure enough, she felt so free on the stage giving that talk and the feedback was the best it had ever been. She was more engaging. They could see her as a human. So I think that it takes like this hump of getting over, but once you get over that hump, you realize that it's a lot more free not to feel like you're always having to perform and people like you more. Two things come to mind when you tell that story. One is um, I was asked to interview Shonda Rhimes, I think it was in 2014, in front of a live audience of a bunch of like very high-powered Wall Street executive women. It was insane. It was like 2,500 people spill over. She was really – and what I didn't know is that she was in the beginning part of her year of yes, which was she decided she's a very shy person. And she decided that she was going to really try to get herself out there. It's hard for her to do. So we're doing, you know, these pre-calls that you have and like her people are on and she gets on the phone and it was a rough call. I'm going to tell you the truth, guys. Like I was freaking scared of her and I was worried. I went to talk to a lot of people who like knew people who knew people who knew her. And I'm like, you got to help me out. I don't know how to do these entertainment people. CEOs are easy for me. I was pretty anxious for this event. You know, she was shy. So I think that that was important for me to understand that. That's what someone said to me. He's like, don't take this as cold. Take it as shy. She's shy. So in the beginning, it's just like, tell me a little bit about yourself. And then you're at that moment where you look at the clock and you're like, oh my God, five minutes has passed and we, I have to like do 35 more minutes. It's going to be impossible. And I asked her what I thought was a simple question about, you know, how, how she tries to balance being a mother and running a 600 person organization. And she looked out in the crowd and she had this moment where it was like, okay, this is going to be good. I can almost tell. She said, well, the way I think about it is every day as a working parent, essentially I fail. And the whole audience almost audibly gasped. Failed? 
what do you mean? She's like the most successful showrunner and she's this and she's that. And, and she looked out and she said, let me explain this to you. She said, you know, my kid, one of my kids had to do a concert on the same day that Sandra O oh was leaving Grey's Anatomy and I had to pick one or the other. And she looked out and she goes, and you guys have this choice every day. There's something you're missing in one side of your life because you're doing something else in the other side of your life. And she said, and I finally realized that like, I'm not going to be able to do two things at once. In one hand, you know, I'm going to feel like a failure. And the other hand, I'm going to feel like a failure. And she goes, and then I just decided like, so what? What's the big deal? Like, so yeah. So what if I am failing, you know, at this thing? That's just the way, these are the choices I have. And it was wild to look at the audience and see everybody's minds just racing at that moment. So, of course, I said, what'd you do? She's like, well, I failed at a boss because I went to my kid's concert and I wasn't there for the last day Sandra O oh was on my set after, you know, being on the program for, I think, 10 or 11 years. And you know what? It was so, it was such a great moment. From that moment on, she became a different person. The audience looked at her a different way. And I did too. And I feel like that kind of vulnerability is something she wasn't comfortable with, but it like broke down the barrier and made the interview fantastic. Like if people didn't love her before, man, did they love her at that moment. First off, thank you for sharing that story. I love it. It, it absolutely embodies what I'm talking about with vulnerability. And you look at like a lot of problematic things in society and it tends to be because people are going around having convinced themselves that they're bulletproof and they do have everything figured out. And we've seen this particularly with a handful of older male leaders in both politics and the corporate world. And it's really made me realize that, hey, if someone says like, I've got everything figured out, I've got it all together, you should probably run the other way. <laughs> right. That's I mean, so seriously, it's not, it's not to say that like, you know, there's a difference between expertise and someone that's completely making it up. But in a way, like vulnerability and humility are such close cousins because it keeps you, talk about keeping you grounded, it keeps you on earth if you can regularly kind of just reflect on areas that get to the heart of where you feel like you're coming up short or you're feeling or that you're scared. And also on the other side of our vulnerabilities tend to be our core values. So if you're really vulnerable and scared of talking to other people, it's probably because you value connection so much. Mm. If you're terrified of mortality, it's probably because you value life. If you're scared of being alone, probably because you value love. So by exploring our vulnerabilities, we also get a pretty clear answer of what it is that we should be prioritizing in our lives. Something really jumped out at me, and Mark and I talk about this all the time, about something you write about with self-determination theory. You say that SDT demonstrates that humans thrive when three basic needs are met, autonomy or the ability to have at least some control over how we spend our time and energy. And Mark and I talk about this all the time because obviously um, we're kind of running our own little lives here, right? This like Jill on money land. And I feel like that has been the greatest gift that I could have expected in my professional life. And it is so much more important than money. So much more important. I'm wondering if that autonomy piece is also one of those things that came out of the COVID era that, you know, finally you didn't have the bosses saying like, you have to be here at this time. And this, like, it was like, get your work done. We're all in this together. 
life's crazy. You got your kids on the Zoom, come back to here. But like that you felt some control. You didn't have to get on the treadmill at the exact same time to catch the train or sit in traffic. And I want to know why that autonomy piece becomes so important in our lives. Autonomy is so important. You're spot on. Now, there's a couple ways to think about it. The first is that going back to like this notion of mortality, we're all going to die unless, you know, Peter Thiel or whoever can figure out the way to live forever. I'm not betting on it. Mm. So deep down inside, we all know that we have limited time and limited energy and feeling like it is constrained by external forces is not a good feeling. Of course not. You don't want, it's, it's that simple. You don't want people telling you what you have to do and where you have to spend your energy. Now, there's always going to be some degree of that because we live in a society. You have to stop at a red light. You're also going to be in professional situations where you're in organizations where you have to do stuff that you don't want to do. But too much of that, in talk about sucking your soul, it really starts to suck to crush your soul. Hmm. And I think that the more that you can give yourself autonomy, and if you're a manager or a leader listening to this, the more that you can give your people autonomy the better you'll feel or the better your staff will feel. And same thing goes with performance. And for the people listening out here that are really dialed in on money, I make such a strong argument in the book. And I make this all the time with people that are chasing money, that real wealth is actually the ability to choose how you spend your time and energy. Mm. And money can be a gateway to that. And it never hurt. And it actually helps quite a bit. But Once you get to a point where you have the ability to buy your autonomy, then chasing more money for the sake of chasing more money might be what you want to do, but it's worth stepping back and evaluating. That's such an important thing. And again, an important part of groundedness, because the more money, it's just more, 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 it's out in front of you. Whereas if you can say like, hey, you know, I I can afford healthcare, I can afford, I can live the lifestyle I want. Well, then to me, that is, that's real wealth. And, you know, I think the same thing's true in our game, Jill, with like relevance, because I could always sell more books. You could always have a higher ranked podcast and that's fun. And it feels really good to perform well. Mm-hmm. And, and yet when we're having this conversation, I'm not thinking about that at all. I'm just enjoying the chance to meet a kindred spirit. So it's like, how do you kind of tease apart the motivations behind what you do, what you do? realizing that generally the more money, the more followers, the more books, the more downloads, it's actually only a thing when you're in this game of heroic individualism, when you're worrying about it. Whereas when you're actually doing the thing, when you're building a business, when you're making investment decisions, reading analyst reports, when you're having these conversations, writing the book, so on and so forth, that's the stuff that actually like brings fulfillment and groundedness to your life. It's tough because we live in a candy store where the candy is like all this constant reinforcement of do more, be more, have more. And it takes us away from actually being in our lives. And, and, you know, maybe if I leave someone with anything like tying this back to autonomy, the way that autonomy works is it allows you to actually be in your life. Well, that's it. That's it for the program. And if you want, go get Brad Stolberg's book, The Practice of Groundedness, it's going to be in our show notes. So just check it out. And if you want to find the show notes, all you need to do is go to jillonmoney.com. That's our website. That's where everything lives. So there you can do all sorts of things. You can 
read articles, you can listen to old shows, you can check out the resource section, and you can subscribe to our sister broadcast called Eye on Money. So check it out, everything at Jill on Money. All righty, lift someone up today, even if that person is a Jets fan. Grit, growth, grace, a little gratitude. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Tomorrow.